Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Charles Robinson, and welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. When you look into the night sky, what do you see? The moon, stars, and vast amounts of darkness. As you look into the darkness, do you question, is there anything out there? We now have an answer. The launch of the Jim Webb Space Telescope and its collection of data have uncovered new universes and galaxies. The stunning images are full of color and have answered a simple question. We are not alone. On this edition of Future City, we look at the Jim Webb Space Telescope, or JWST for short. We'll look at its impact and how it will affect younger generations. I'll talk to the interim executive director at the Space Telescope Science Institute, Nancy Levinson. The institute is based in Baltimore. Levinson will take us behind the scenes. Is what we're seeing an image or a picture? Dr. Marshall Shepard of the University of Georgia penned an article in Forbes magazine on this subject. We'll also ask him about what his students in STEM are thinking when they look at the telescope's discovery. We kick off the show with a conversation with Terry Randall. She's a producer on the PBS documentary series Nova. They had exclusive access to the creation of of the telescope, its launch, and of course, the amazing pictures shown around the world. Terry, how did this project land in your lap? Well, I've done um, several hours for NOVA on NASA missions. And so I was well aware, NOVA was well aware, I was well aware this mission was coming up. The big question was when. So we started looking into it in 2017 when the launch was supposed to be 2018, and I got delayed and delayed and delayed. And finally, we were hoping that in 2020 that the date was going to hold, and it pretty much did, but it was close enough that we could start documenting the story, and it was going to launch. I know a lot of people who have watched this uh, online and on, on, on PBS, I was fascinated by this whole idea that you took us from the beginning through all the ups and downs. Talk a little bit about, as a documentary maker, you never know what you're going to get. Is that correct? Yeah, especially, um, you know, launch. You know, once they've constructed the telescope and they think it's going to work, then there's launch. And when you document a launch, you never know what's going to happen. Um, and then in this in the case of this uh, mission, because there's so much that had to happen for weeks after launch just to get the telescope up and running in space. So we documented that. We were with the team during that time. But again, you never know, and they don't know if you're going to run into trouble. So you sort of have to go with the flow. One of the things that I think you captured so well is Many of the scientists, the astrophysicists, and others, they've been at this for a lifetime. 
did that uh, surprise you? Most NASA missions take a long time. People are on them for a long time. This one, especially so, because, you know, it started back in 1995, the idea, and it just, they had ran into a lot of problems. So more so than I think than any mission I've seen, it, you know, for some people, it was a career. I note that a lot of people think space travel is routine. <laughs> Can you dispel that idea for us? Again, when you're doing something, and I think that it was Mike Menzel who put it so well, when you're when you're doing something you've never done before and you're exploring space in a way you haven't done before, there, there's all these unknowns. And mixed with a tremendous amount of excitement, they were really nervous, but they'd been working on this for so long. So I think for them, it was just so cool to actually do it, you know, so they were, and, and, and to prove that they could do it. Nervous that something could go wrong, knowing that they had done for like a, a year and a half, two years, they rehearsed things and they rehearsed scenarios after launch. If something goes wrong, what do you do? So they had all these simulations. So they had prepared themselves for so many, you know, unknowns. Um, so that if something did happen, they had a solution. They wouldn't have to wait and figure it out. They had solutions prepared. So I think they were just excited to finally, like, you know, do it. I know when you're working in this unique environment called space, <laughs> it is difficult. It's not like you can send a photographer up there and say, hey, capture this. Talk about the things that you had to do in and around beyond the the space mission, to give the audience a sense of the how and the why? Well, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of animation that, you know, one has to do to, to you can't shoot on location. So what I always say about space programs, about space exploration. So you have to come up with other graphics and other ways to explain it. Um, but I think part of it also, especially during deployment, was done through the through the room that, you know, seeing where they were and hearing what they were doing. And, and they had certain visuals that we used so you could get a sense of what was happening up there. As many young people were watching this and older folks, what do you hope people will get from this? Because, you know, I was a science geek. You know, I had a telescope, <laughs> but this changes the way we think about space, does it not? Well, actually, I'm working on a second hour for NOVA about the science that's coming out of the telescope. So every day I'm in touch with the scientists because new new information is coming in on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And the telescope is working so well that there is they're just inundated with with new information, especially about the early universe. And I, it looks like there's a lot of theories that are going to sort of find themselves out of, out of date because they're discovering things that, that they did not anticipate about how galaxies formed, how stars formed. So I think we're really going to revolutionize astronomy with this telescope. Young people have always gravitated to the unknown. 
talk to that generation, that five-year-old, that seven-year-old who says, you know, that seems, that seems interesting, if you will. Well, the, it's interesting that you say that because um, the scientists who are involved in this mission, who, as you said before, have been involved in it for, for some of them for you know, their careers, really see the telescope as the telescope for the future because it's for the, the, the five-year-old and the, the high school student, they're the, they're the people who are gonna get a chance to use this telescope. And um, so it really in their minds is, is like what Hubble has been for decades, is what JWST will be for this next generation. When we look to the cosmos, you know, um, you know I think, um, most of my childhood was shaped by what I saw on television from the Star Treks to the Star Wars and whatever. Is it your intention to show the possibilities or the, the inevitability of why we exist in the universe? You know, the scientists, depending on what field of astronomy they're in uh, are looking to answer different questions. So, you know, the big question that comes up all the time is how did we get here? And is there anything, is there life beyond earth? And so those are some of the big questions that I think everybody can relate to that this telescope, I think is gonna begin to answer bit by bit. And, um, I think we may be surprised with some of the answers. I don't know about you, but there's some really smart people. <laughs> and do you sometimes go, I'm actually talking to these folks and they seem to have answers that haven't been asked of the questions that we need to know. Well, one thing that is great about doing an hour like this for NOVA is that the scientists really want to be on NOVA and, and to share their work on NOVA because they know it's a, a, you know, it's a serious science show that's going to try to really communicate what they're trying to do. So um, I feel privileged actually to be able to ask them really dumb questions <laughs> and for them to take the time to like explain to me uh, some big ideas, which that I then have to figure out how to distill to explain to someone like myself who didn't know anything about it in the first place. So, um, and they really make an effort. It's really important to them to communicate to the public what they're doing and why it's important. So I rely on them for that. Kind of want to get out of here on this. Um, the show is called Future City. What will future generations look back and think of the work that you've done and what the scientists have done? Well, I think like Hubble, which has completely transformed our understanding and our view of the universe, JWST is gonna be doing that too. And I think that, that again, questions like uh, where did we come from and, and is there life beyond earth? This will be the time in which some of those questions will start to be answered, not fully answered, but they'll start to find the clues they need to answer those questions in exoplanets, in moons 
you know, the moon of uh, moon of Jupiter and moon of Saturn. So this is the beginning of, I think, uh, answers to some big questions. That's Terry Randall. She's with Nova. And we thank you for joining us on Future City. Thank you. Thanks, Terry Randall. Randall is a producer on the PBS program Nova. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We don't want you to go anywhere. One of the enduring images from space travel comes from the television series Star Trek, created by Gene Roddenberry. Three characters stood out, Captain James T. Kirk, Spock, and Lieutenant Uhuru. Uhuru was played by actress Nichelle Nichols. Following the first season, she went to Roddenberry to let him know she was planning to leave. The show's director told her to spend the weekend and think about it. Saturday during a dinner, Nichols was introduced to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Here's an excerpt from a conversation recorded for the archives of American television. Whoever that fan is, is going to have to wait because Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King, my leader, is walking toward me, not 10 feet away, with a beautiful smile on his face. And then this man says, yes, Miss Nichols, I am that fan. I am your best fan, your greatest fan. And my family are your greatest fans. As a matter of fact, this is the only show on television that my wife Coretta and I will allow our little children to watch, to stay up and watch because it's on past their bedtime. He said, we admire you greatly, you know, and I, he said some more things and, and the, the manner in which you've created this role uh, has dignity and so forth. And, and he said, you know, um, and before he said, I said, Dr. King, thank you so much. Um, and then I got the courage to say, and I really am going to miss my co-stars. And he said, what do you mean? Dead serious. What are you talking about? I said, well, I've had an off. He said, you cannot. And I said, well, I've, I'm going to leave Star Trek because I am going to say have an offer to star in, in, in. I never got that far. I said, well, I'm leaving Star Trek. He's, he said, you cannot. You cannot. I was taken aback and I, I didn't say anything. I just looked at him. He said, don't you understand what this man has achieved? Is, is achieving or something? This And I thought, deja vu all over again. I s just looked at him. He said, for the first time on television, we will be seen as we should be seen every day, as intelligent, quality, beautiful people who can sing, dance, and but who can go into space, who can be lawyers, who can be teachers who can be professors who are in this day and yet you don't see it on television until now and he went on so so many of the things perhaps some of the things he he said but i could say nothing i just stood there realizing every word that he was saying was the truth <laughs>
And he said, if you leave, Michelle, Gene Roddenberry has opened a door for the world to see us. If you leave, that door can be closed because you see, your role is not a black role and it's not a female role. He can fill it with anything, including an alien. And at that moment, the world tilted for me. And I knew then, I didn't want to know it because I was gonna go through some more turmoil for the rest of the week. And, but I knew that I was something else, that the world was not the same as Dr. King. Everything that he had said, the world sees us for the first time as we shall, should be seen. Whatever happened come Monday morning, I went to Jean, and I'm not sure to this day if I knew what I was going to say. And he had, whoever he was talking to had to, to leave because I went there first. And I said, Jean, and I told him what happened. And I said, if you still want me to stay, I'll stay, I have to. And he opened his drawer and he looked up at me and said, God bless Dr. Martin Luther King. Somebody knows where I'm coming from. And he took out my resignation, which was torn into a hundred pieces and handed me the pile. And we just stood there looking at each other. And I finally said, thank you, Gene. And he said, thank you, Nichelle. And my life's never been the same. Miss Nichols died recently. At her family's request, Miss Nichols will have her ashes launched into space. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On today's show, we're looking at the Jim Webb Space Telescope. Our next guest worked at NASA and was part of the team that helped launch the space shuttle. Dr. Marshall Shepard now teaches at the University of Georgia. He and others have anxiously been waiting the unveiling of the images from the telescope. I am delighted to be joined by my good friend, Dr. Marshall Shepard of the University of Georgia. He was named the SEC is it faculty of the year? Professor of the year. Professor of the year. First of all, Marshall, let's talk about uh, JWTS, the Jim Webb Space Telescope. You and I were anxiously awaiting the, um, the images that were going to come back from this. Tell me what your anticipation level was and what were you excited about? Well, Charles, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. It's good to hear from you uh, as well. You know, it's interesting because I spent a good deal of my career at NASA. I was a research meteorologist at NASA. Now, I was looking back at Earth with the satellites that NASA was putting into space. But during that time uh, at NASA, I knew engineers and scientists that were working on the James Webb Space Telescope. There was a palpable anticipation of what this new technology, game-changing technology was going to bring, uh, not just to the astrophysics community, 
but the science and technology community as well. Uh, the scientist in me, the, the weather geek, the space geek in me was just anticipating just this new look at the universe, new look at the solar system that we would never uh, see before. But then I started thinking long-term, this is way bigger than astrophysics. And that's what I wrote about in the Forbes article that I know got your attention. Well, let's talk about the Forbes article, because I think a lot of people may not have read it, but you asked the simple question, is it an image or is it a picture? <laughs> How did you answer that? Yeah, I, that was just a question that I, I posed because in science, you know, we talk about imagery uh, coming from these satellites and so forth. Um, but the really bigger question, because they are images, I mean, uh, pictures are really photos that come from cameras uh, with images. We do things on the scientific side to process that information, that scientific data to reveal things. And so the, the real essence of the, the question that I was asking in the, in the web telescope beyond that is why it matters to us. I mean, many people may be sitting in their homes or riding in their cars and they're worried about gas prices or who's going to win the next election or, or, or health. And so they be, may be saying, why do I care about this space telescope? And so that's what I was digging deep into, because um, a lot of people don't necessarily understand how science and technology innovations and forward thinking uh, missions like James Webb literally affect their daily lives. But it does. I know that. One of the things that uh, you just talked about was this ability of using infrared. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I thought was fascinating was the different colors that came out some of the images. I thought it was fascinating. They said, if you see white, that is closer to us. But if you see red, that is further away from us. Our, you know, I don't know about you, but I remember... Was it Carl Sagan? We're billions and billions of years. That's what we're basically doing. We're looking back in time, aren't we? We are. Um, using these infrared images, uh, we can see the distant universe. We can see some of this light that we're seeing, quote unquote, um, is literally first light, essentially, some of the first light of our universe. And so, uh, that's just fascinating to me. Uh, and many of you may be saying, what are you, Charles and Marshall, talking about this infrared stuff? Well, COVID probably gave many of you insight into infrared without you knowing it, because you probably walked into some place and they had these infrared guns taking your temperature to see if you were running a fever. Um, we humans, everything emits radiation, emits heat. That's infrared. And so we have capabilities of detecting that infrared from our bodies or from a distant star or from a distant planet or some type of distant astrophysical body. And so James Webb provided the ability to do that and to see further in time. But not only that, Charles, um, even though it was designed to sort of see elements of sort of the deep space and sort of the earliest parts of our universe's evolution, um, Scientists are smart at NASA and, and at universities. They are now using James Webb to also see some really interesting things uh, in our nearby galaxies or in our own solar system. And so we're learning new things about those as well. I note that a number of scientists have literally dedicated their entire life mm -hmm. to, to, to making sure this came off without a hitch. The probability for success was not known right and the probability for 
failure was somewhat high. Talk about that. Some, it was very high. <laughs> <laughs> it's not some. <laughs> Talk about that anxiety as you're working on a major project mm -hmm. and you don't know which way it may go. And what happens when you go, daggone it, it worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll, I'll give you an example of that using a recent mission, Charles, on the weather and climate side of the house that I work on, uh, NASA was recently launching a, a series of small satellites uh, called Tropics. They were part of a broader mission called Tropics. And we, we were going to put those satellites in the orbit to look back at the Earth and help monitor hurricanes uh, for some of the weather and climate research that goes on at NASA. Well, the satellite was lost on launch. The rocket was launched and it didn't achieve orbit. There was a malfunction or failure. So years of work to develop that satellite and for scientists to anticipate what would come from that satellite was lost uh, in that mission. Now, this was a much smaller scale satellite mission than James Webb. So I can't imagine uh, the anxiety that scientists at NASA and at the various facilities and universities work on astrophysics research, I can't imagine the anxiety that they felt as in the, it, there are multiple phases, Charles. First of all, you launch the satellite on a rocket. There is an inherently great risk there alone, just getting it to orbit. But then once you get it to orbit, uh, the satellite actually is packed in a, in a rocket that has to be unfolded and deployed. And so that takes a process. And then you have to say, okay, are all of the systems working? Are all of the software systems working? Are the communication and data uh, aspects of the system working? And so once you get confidence that that's working and then you can start taking images and then you hope the imagers are working correctly and that there are no malfunctions and so forth, because it's not like um, you know going over to the Jiffy Lube and changing your, your oil or anything. We can't just pop up there and fix something if it's going wrong. And so luckily and thankfully that's a testament to the engineering and science at NASA. Uh, James Webb has, has been working amazingly, and it literally is changing the face of what science looks like. And I want to say the face of science also was changed, too, in that Greg Robinson, one of our fraternity brothers, Alpha Phi Alpha members, was one of the leads on getting the James Webb Space Telescope scope back on, on track. Uh, it, it ran into a lot of, uh, you know, delays, cost overruns, and so forth at NASA. And Greg, who was featured in an, um, as one of Time Magazine's most 100 influential people and so forth, brought that together. So it's important to know that because here you have this African-American scientist. There are not many African-American scientists and engineers and managers at NASA, literally uh, the face of getting this mission into orbit. I want you to look into your crystal ball, uh, Marshall, and tell me what future generations will learn from what we are just beginning to discover with the Jim Webb telescope. Yeah, we're, we're, we're gonna learn just about how, I, the, the most detailed understanding of how our universe has formed. Uh, there are some uh, suggestions that we may be able to move forward our discussion and, and information on exoplanets, planets outside of our solar system that could perhaps have life, for example. Uh, we'll learn about sort of 
you know, the evolution and demise of stars and, and so forth, black holes. Uh, we're all interconnected in this universe, and there's some things out there that we don't still understand. Uh, James Webb literally is going to rewrite the textbooks for future generations. But more importantly than that, in my view, Charles, uh, missions like this are once-in-a-lifetime missions we know from various scientific studies that missions like this inspire the next generation. Even if they don't go on to be astrophysicists, it inspires them to do science, math, technology, and engineering. And we know that in the next 10, 20, 30 years, most of the jobs in this uh, economy, in this world, are going to be STEM-based jobs. And we know that Kids often or students tend to shy away from STEM related fields, particularly women and people of color. And so I am hoping this is the next great revolution in the same way that the Apollo mission inspired that generation of engineers or the space shuttle inspired that generation of engineers. Now we have James Webb. That's Dr. Marshall Shepard. He's a professor at the University of Georgia. Tell the folks where they can find your work. Yeah, thank you, Charles. I'm, I'm out there on Twitter. Please follow me at Dr. Shepherd 2013 or you can follow me. I have a public Facebook page as well. Uh, you just Google Dr. Marshall Shepherd. I try to use all of those platforms to share what I know about science, technology, and frankly, whatever else is on my mind that day. Thanks, Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1. W-Y-P-R. In our next segment, a conversation with Nancy Levinson, the Interim Executive Director of the Space Science Telescope Institute based in Baltimore. Before we go, the Jim Webb Telescope has given us a lot of new images. But who knew they had a listening device? Last week, the telescope gave us a clue as to what a black hole sounds like. Take a listen. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. When your entire career in astrophysics and astronomy is tied up in a singular event, you keep your fingers crossed. That's what Nancy Levinson and her colleagues at Baltimore's Space Science Telescope and NASA installations were doing in July. Levinson and her colleagues were on pins and needles until they revealed the first pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope. Nancy, first of all, um, this process of getting uh, the Jim Webb Telescope just didn't happen overnight. Can you give us a short version of how we got to where we are today? Sure. Happy to try to give the short version of, of what has literally been decades in the making of thinking ahead to what was the new capability we wanted to have even before the Hubble Space Telescope was launched. Um, and astronomers had ambitions for an even larger telescope 
that would give us more power to see faint things in the universe, to see things finally in the universe. Um, and then once we truly began moving forward on this project, uh, to do the engineering, to design the, the telescope and the instruments that actually collect the light from all of these celestial objects, to put it all together, uh, to get it ready for, for launch. And even after launch, it's been a long process to turn it into an operating observatory. And, and that's what we've been working on lately. A lot of people may not know that you're located in Baltimore, which is literally on Wyman Park Drive, right behind Johns Hopkins University. Can you talk about the people who are both astrophysicists, technicians, and engineers who put this uh, process together? Absolutely. Um, and it is a lot of people and it's a lot of different skills. Um, so it is the astrophysicist looking ahead to what is the scientific capability we need and then working closely with engineers to be able to make that happen, um, to solve some of those technical problems um, so that we can we can we can actually do what we're trying to do. Um, for JWST in Baltimore, we are also the Mission Operations Center. We're literally controlling the telescope that's a million miles away uh, from, from Baltimore. I think a lot of people will wonder, what are those folks doing there? <laughs> I don't know if you can break it down in a simplistic uh, conversation, but you're, 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 you're collecting data and then you're transforming that data into scientific work. Absolutely, that's that that's that's the the, the brief the brief synopsis. Um, a few more steps along the way, even the starting point of deciding what to look at and how to look at it. That's something that we work with the international scientific community on. Um, that they identify the observations that they need, and um, our our technical people can help them do that some of the best way. So, so there's there's work there even um, even before we start the observation, and then of course there's the the process of controlling the telescope, controlling the instruments, um, setting the schedule to fit all of those different things together, um, and then when the data come back, they're not immediately ready to use for science. Um, we have to make some corrections for the way we observe, for the way the instruments perform. Um, and so that's a that's a lot of the work that we do at the Space Telescope Science Institute um, to to turn to turn that raw data um, into useful information for science. I think a lot of people believe that when you send a satellite or space shuttle in the orbit or to these far, far away missions, everything works perfectly. <laughs> There's a lot of what I would call questions of how to, is it going to work? Can you explain the anxiety that your group sometimes has as they're waiting for the data to come in? Sure, sure. And, and this particular mission uh, presented uh, plenty of those, those hold your breath moments. Um, the, the whole observatory is so large that it had to be folded up 
to fit into a rocket to be able to be launched. And then that meant a process of unfolding once it was in space. And there were literally hundreds of single point failures, individual things that had to go right for this to work for that whole unfolding or deployment process uh, to even get things set up into, into the right configuration. And then over, over the last six months, we've been through a process of uh, setting up the telescope, testing out the instruments, making sure things work the, the, way, the way we expect them to. Um, so it was, it, was, it was not a point and shoot from day one. It's, it's been work and it will continue to be work for us. I note that, uh, you know, as you are progressing, there's always this chance of failure. That happened with Hubble with its lens. And one of the things you figured out real quick was, we're not going to be able to go up there and fix it. Talk a little bit about the fail-safes that were put in place. Sure, exa exactly. And, and you, you, you hit it, just, just the key point is that with the telescope a million miles away, far beyond the reach of, of humans to, to repair and correct and update, it, it had to work. It had, it had to work by itself. Um, so some of the most important things that we did were testing on the ground to test all of the systems, individually testing those component parts to make sure that they work the way we thought they would. And also, once it was all put together, testing the whole system uh, so, in fact, a, an important part of that was using um, one of the vacuum chambers that's at the Johnson Space Center that was used as part of the Apollo program. So we could literally see the light follow the whole path along the mirrors and into the instruments to make sure that that was all, all in good shape. Um, so so that, that kind of engineering work is, is what gave us a lot of confidence that, that it would, in fact, um, work correctly. Um, but you're right. We didn't we didn't have have an option to fix it if it didn't. I note that a number of uh, scientists who worked on this project had, um, if you will, used have been doing this for a lifetime. Talk about their uh, stick to itness, if you will, and their visionary thoughts about what was possible. Yeah, and that and and that second point about the vision is is just is just so important to to have that expansive sense of what is possible, what are even the questions we're trying to answer, and and then what would what would be the capability that that future capability that we need um, to to make it happen, and so I really give a. Um, uh, a lot of a lot of credit to the people who were who were able to do that. Um, and again, in the early days when they started thinking about this, they didn't know how these problems would be solved. In fact, there were there were about ten completely new technologies, completely new ways of doing things um, that, that that had to that had to be discovered to to make this to make this work. Um, and so there were people though who kept focused on what we were trying to accomplish, what those questions about the universe they had that 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 we feel compelled to answer, and that that was just such a driving a driving motivation um, to keep at it uh, despite the very long time scale. 
One of the things I noticed, I watched the day of the unveiling of the photographs or images, if you will, was the international nature of this project. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure, and and ab absolutely, this this is an international project, um, starting starting from from the the design level. Um, NASA is is the lead space agency, but there's important participation from the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency, and and so they have been absolutely involved in this, uh, developing some of the instruments that are on JWST. Um, and and beyond that, the astronomy community is global. And so the use of this facility is open to the entire world community, um, those who come up with the best competitive ideas to figure out how we should be, be using, using this and, and what we're trying to accomplish with the science questions. Let's just get down to those images that you captured. First and foremost, it began with Hubble looking at a dark space in space, if you will. And you recognize that there weren't just one galaxy, but there were many galaxies. What I found fascinating was how you made a determination, because you're literally looking back in time, that the white light was basically the closest thing to you, and then the red light was the furthest thing from you. How did that work itself out? Um, let, let's see. So, so you're you're right in describing that that we are literally looking back in time because the light emitted by these distant galaxies has taken literally billions of years to travel to us, um, and so that's the way these telescopes are are a time machine. Um, the other the other point that you were alluding to is that because the whole universe is expanding, those more distant galaxies, the light that they emit um, gets shifted towards the redder parts of the spectrum, the longer wavelength parts of parts of, of what we can measure. And that's actually what JWST observes, which is what makes it um, so fantastic for observing those distant galaxies. Um, it really is one of the things it was it was designed for. So um, it's true that that with everything we're looking at with with this new facility, there is no such thing as blank sky. Everything that we're looking at, there 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 are galaxies in the background, even if we're trying to focus in close on our own Milky Way. One of the things I know is that there were young a lot of young people watching this, and this is Future City. So <laughs> tell me what they will visualize moving forward or what you hope they will visualize sure sure there 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 are two two specific ways i i think about that um the 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 one is is a, is a little bit more concrete um just to just to share with everyone that here we are here we are in baltimore um and recognizing everything that it takes to put this together and I hope that people have a, a sense that they might have a place there. 
Um, they, they might be an astronomer, that's one option, but that's not the only option. They, they might be an engineer or they, they might even be working on computer systems that, that we need to make all of this function. And, and so, so seeing that there are lots of different ways to be connected uh, and to contribute, um, that's, that's something that I, that I hope, hope someone might have a, some young person might have a, a sense for them, themselves of, of what's possible. Um, the the second the second way to think about what's future, what's coming, is just as we said with JWST, that uh, scientists started thinking very early on about what they wanted next, what their their aspirations were. I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound overly greedy, but it's just just looking ahead. Um, and and so we've already started having those conversations. We've start already started imagining what's next. Um, and something that's so important for us is thinking about the search for life in the universe um, and to detect some of those real signatures of, of life, we would need an even larger telescope and we would need even better ways to block out the bright light of stars to see those faint planets that are close to them. And so those are some of the designs that that we're, we already have in mind and are imagining what kind of technology do we need to develop to, to get that even larger telescope to exist. That's Nancy Levinson. She is the Interim Executive Director at the Space Telescope Science Institute. Nancy, thank you so very much for joining us here on Future City. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Nancy Levinson, for joining us. If you want to see the images from the Jim Webb Space Telescope, we have them posted on the WYPR website. The allure of space has been with us throughout time. From ancient civilizations assigning gods to constellations, to Galileo using a rude telescope to peer into the heavens. The Jim Webb Space Telescope provides a glimpse into possibilities. Looking into vast darkness to see light was unimaginable. Think what future generations will think of this discovery. I know this will spark inquiries of young people not yet born. The astrophysicists, the astronomers, and engineers literally spent a lifetime working on this project. Now we must replenish this intellectual resource with curious minds. President John F. Kennedy said it succinctly, we choose to go to the moon and beyond. Let this be a clarion call to educators and students. This is just the beginning. Thank you to today's guests for sharing their expertise and allowing us to hear their knowledge. If you want to see some of the images from the Jim Webb Space Telescope, please visit the Future City link on the WYPR webpage. Future City is produced and edited by Spencer Bryant. You can listen to extended conversations with all of our guests and find more about them by visiting WYPR.org and search for Future City. We welcome your feedback, and you can always email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at Future City, that's one word, at wypr.org. Until next time, 
I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR and my producer, Spencer Bryant, and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.